So let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us tonight. We pray you would show us wonderful things from your law. And we pray your spirit would be among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is our last night. I, you know, we're looking at a controversial passage. I realize, you know, different people have different readings of this passage. We're all to be Bereans and search out what we think the scriptures mean. So, you know, when I argued the first night is basically I just showed you all the warning passages. I think we can sum up the warning passages with this one uh, statement of Jesus. Jesus said, if you deny me, I will deny you. Those are the warning passages in brief, right? If If you deny Jesus, he'll deny you. That is, if you deny Jesus, you'll go to hell. I think that's what that means. But, but, then, but then we have to say, we always have to look at all of Scripture, right? Peter denied Jesus, didn't he? Peter denied Jesus, but Peter's not going to hell. So, so it must mean if you fully and finally deny Jesus, right? Because Peter denied Jesus, but that denial did not separate him from Jesus forever. So... We have, we have to be, we have to, we have to read this in a, in a full way, don't we? We, we, we have to, we, we, we need not, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this right, we, we need to read this in a sophisticated way. It's, 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 it's not simple. You know, Peter's denial, though, it's, it's very different from what Judas did, right? Judas strategized. Judas planned to betray Jesus. He thought it out in his mind. What did Peter say that very night? He said to Jesus, I'll die with you. So the moment came and he collapsed. No excuses, right? But he wanted to. He wanted to die for Jesus. He ended up denying him that night. Uh, You know, another story uh, that's somewhat similar, the story of Thomas Cranmer, If you don't know the name Thomas Cranmer, he lived in the 1500s. He was the architect, so to speak, of the the Reformation that took place in in England. Uh, So Thomas Cranmer was an Anglican, but then Mary, Queen Mary, uh, became queen, and she was a Catholic. And uh, they were very different days than today. And uh, Mary very much hated Thomas Cranmer, and she had decided in her mind that she was going to uh, put him to death no matter what. But uh, Thomas, but first of all, she, she threatened Thomas. She didn't tell Thomas she was going to kill him no matter what. She threatened him and said, um, unless you deny your teachings, I'm going to burn you at the stake. Thomas was terrified, and he renounced his teachings. What a coward. Well, we can understand. We'd probably all do the same thing, right? He renounced his teachings. Then Mary had the idea, this is great. I'm going to bring him out of prison, and I'm going to have him read his recantation of the faith in front of all the other people. That'll be a great idea. But Thomas was a believer, right? And Thomas, the Holy Spirit was working on him. So he denied Jesus, really, right? But kind of like Peter, the Holy Spirit got a hold of him, started to regret it, you know, 
And uh, by the time it came to read his recantation in church, he recanted his recantation, you know? He said, no, 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 no. I believe this stuff. And, and he was burned. So Mary burned him. And uh, he put his hand, the story goes, he put his hand that signed that recantation the first time. He put that in the fire first. And that is, it's beautiful, right? So again, we see both with Peter and Thomas, right? If Jesus says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. But it has to be a full and final denial, doesn't it? Peter denied Jesus, so did Thomas, but ultimately they came back. So, so I'm putting things together tonight. People, people read the Bible different ways within the circle of orthodoxy, but I, but I want to say, the first thing I want to say is all those, the way I read the scriptures, all those who are truly believers, all those who belong to God, all those whom God has chosen will never fall away. God, God, God keeps his sheep. So I'm going to give you uh, four texts quickly. Philippians 1.6, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Well, the good work is salvation. And if that good work has begun, he promises to complete it. Who began the good work? He did. And since he began it, he completes what he begins. Romans 8, 35 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? <clears throat> and then Paul answers the question. He, goes, he says, let's think of all the things that could. Shall tribulation, right, the pressures of life? Shall distress? How about persecution? How about getting your head cut off, as some people have, Right? How about that? How about famine? Have some Christians starved to death in history? Yeah, some have, right? Or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What is Paul saying in, that, in this verse? These things happen to Christians, right? They are like sheep to be slaughtered. Sometimes they're put to death. So are we separated from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even in the midst of the greatest sufferings, we sang about that tonight, didn't we? When death comes, even if it comes in an agonizing way, for those who love Christ, he keeps us. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord. For those who know Jesus, for those who are saved, God keeps us. You know, he lists all the things that would cause us to fall away, doesn't he? What would cause you to fall away? How about persecution? How about starving? How about all the pressures of life? And he says that's not going to happen, right? So Arminians say, and they're within the circle of orthodoxy, there are brothers and sisters, good believers differ on this, right? They say that we can separate ourselves, right? Because Arminians believe, I taught in an Arminian school for three years, many lovely brothers and sisters there, but they say that we can, we can jump out. But, but 
I don't, I don't think that's right. I think he lists all the things that would cause us to jump out and says it won't separate us. And plus he says nothing in all creation, and I think that includes the human will. So we just have a friendly, yeah, I think it is friendly, but a friendly disagreement on that. John 10, chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Eternal life, by definition, is eternal. What does he say? I give them eternal life, and therefore, I'm putting the therefore in, but I think it's justified, because the life he gives us is eternal, will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That includes yourself, right? You can't be snatched from his hands. He keeps his own. And then John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All those that are given by the Father to the Son will come to the Son. All. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I'll keep, right? They'll come to me at the beginning and they'll never be cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. I won't lose. All those given by the Father to the Son. That's not everybody, right? This is only believers. All those given by the Father to the Son. He's, he won't lose one of those he's given to me, but I'll raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will keep him. I will preserve him. So, so I'm arguing that the Arminian view, a respected view, not a heretical view, in my view, a defective view, right? There are defective views. They think my view is defective, right? Maybe you think my view is defective. We'll see. So, but not a heretical view, but I think a defective view. And, uh, but so I'm arguing the Arminian view, the warnings are addressed to believers, right? It's about salvation, and believers can fall away. No, they're wrong on this last part, right? They're wrong. Believers can't fall away. So, we, so I'm throwing out the Arminian view. No, but I am arguing, here's what I'm arguing. The warnings are addressed to believers. They're about eternal punishment, and true believers will never fall away. That's what I'm saying. So perseverance, a little review. Perseverance is not perfection, right? Perseverance is not works righteousness. Perseverance flows from faith. Perseverance clings to the righteousness of Christ. We sang about that tonight, right? The imputed righteousness of Christ. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Now, I'm going to say something quickly. We won't linger on this because it's a little more complicated. But I'm going to say something quickly about the federal vision view. You know, I've, I've also ruled out, right, I've ruled out the free grace view because I'm, I've argued, if you're with me, if you're not with me, it's okay, 
But I've argued that the punishments here are not just rewards, but, but have to do with salvation. So the free grace view, it, the free grace says it's about rewards, but I'm saying it's not about rewards. It's about salvation. And I've ruled out the almost Christian view because I'm arguing that the warnings in Hebrews are addressed to Christians. So I've ruled out that view. But I haven't said anything about the, the federal vision or the covenantal view. And th this, this is probably the, maybe the hardest argument to understand. So I'm going to say it quickly. If it's helpful to you, wonderful. If it's not helpful to you, no worries. Right? So here it goes. The problem with this view... <clears throat> is the new covenant promises us the Holy Spirit. And those who have the Holy Spirit can't fall away. The, the problem with the covenantal view is it's a defective understanding of the covenant. Here's another way of saying it. The problem with the covenantal view is they're equating the old covenant with the new covenant, but they're not the same. So I'm going to just read two texts and say a quick word about them, and then we're going to move on. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not like that covenant. It's a different covenant. My covenant, the old covenant, they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What was the problem with the old covenant? The people broke it, right? They couldn't keep it. They didn't have the ability to keep it. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what it means to be a member of the new covenant is to have the law written on your heart. That's true of every Christian. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. He's not saying everybody's perfect, but everybody in the new covenant community knows the Lord or you're not part of the new covenant. Every member of the new covenant community is saved, right? They'll all know me. Do you really mean all? Yes. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will give their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Then Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. This is another passage about the new covenant. The Lord says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The new covenant, Ezekiel says in other terms what Jeremiah says, the new covenant promises us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us the desire to do God's will. Not perfectly, but the, so the problem with the covenant view is this. Those who've received the Spirit, that's the covenantal gift, can't depart from that covenant because the gift of the Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, is the seal and guarantee of our final salvation. So, like I said, I did that fast. If that wasn't helpful to you, I apologize. So, so now, now I'm ready to defend my view, and um, we'll see what you think. 
The warnings are addressed to believers. The warnings threaten damnation if you don't heed the warnings. And my argument is all true believers heed the warnings. All true believers heed the warnings. So just a few things to explain my view. I, I could actually say that I'm done, you know. I've told you what I believe. And you're like, that's it? That's it. But a few more things. First of all, warnings are warnings. A warning is a warning. That warning, Warnings are not declarations. So often when we read the warnings, we turn them into declarations. But warnings are prospective. You know, you're walking into life, or you're driving a car and you're, you're being warned. Warnings aren't retrospective, right? Retrospective, you're looking back. But warnings are prospective. You're looking forward. So... The warnings in Hebrews, they're not declarations. And all the warnings we've read, he's not saying you have fallen away. He says don't fall away. That's very important. If you, this is water, but if you drink the poison, you will die. That's a warning, right? That's not a declaration. That's a warning. So the warnings are not rebuking the readers for falling away. So what difference does this make in reading Hebrews? Many people read Hebrews. God bless them. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Many people read Hebrews as saying to the readers, you're not really Christians. Because you're almost a Christian, right? That's how they read Hebrews 6. You're not really a Christian. You're close, but you're not quite there. And therefore, for them... The warning, that passage becomes a call for introspection. Am I really saved? But I'm arguing that's not what he's doing. All five of the passages are together. He's not rebuking them for saying, you haven't come close. I mean, or you haven't closed with Christ. And, 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 and he's not saying you have fallen away. He's, he's warning them. He's urging the readers not to fall away. That's quite different. He's urging them, keep trusting Christ. Keep drinking. Keep drinking from the fountain of living water. The the warnings are like if you're meeting with a marriage counselor and your marriage is in trouble. And the marriage counselor is saying, stay together. Stay together. Work on your marriage. Right? It's, It's a warning. Keep, 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 keep it together. So that, that's my reading. Now, now I ask this question. Here, here's the objection to my view. Probably every one of you have already thought about it, right? What's the big objection? Are the warnings drained of significance if the consequence, that is damnation, cannot be realized? If no believer will drink the poison. That's what you said, right? That's what I said. That's what I said. If no believer will drink the poison, then why the warning? That's the objection, right? That's the big objection to my view. Here's, here's my response. Now, I th- I've, t- I've taught this many, many times, so I don't know you, but I know... I got, a, I got an email from a person today. They'd read my view... And they still raised this objection. And I said, and I understood it. 
I th this person's actually sympathetic to my view, but they didn't fully understand it because I said, the very question you ask shows you don't really understand my view yet. <laughs> because if you ask that question, I mean, that's a very good question, but my response is such a response reads the warnings as an abstraction. That's a big word. But I'm arguing the warning is a means that God actually uses to keep us from falling away. That's how they work. So th this works out in everyday life. Years ago, we had some missionaries staying with us. They were parked right in the back of our garage. And I joked and I said, one of these days, I'm going to back out and hit their car. But then one day, our kids were still living with us then, we were in a hurry. I jumped in the van really fast, put it in reverse, and I'm backing up really fast. And John, our son, yells out, Dad, stop! Good warning. I slammed on the brakes. I missed the car. The warning was the means God used to keep me from the consequence, right? You know, a few years ago, I went to the South Rim of the Grand Canyon. And I was uh, looking down into the canyon, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to jump? <laughs> it would be, wouldn't it? For a little while, it would be fun. I jump into the canyon, but you know, this is how real life works if you're thinking correctly. I said to myself, not going to do it. Because I thought of what? The consequence. That's how I think the warnings were. I thought of the consequence, and I said, I don't want to do that. Because I know it would be fun, but for a very short time, you know? And then the fun would be over. I mentioned the other day, I think of weird things. I mentioned the other day, wouldn't it be fun to drive with our eyes closed? Have you ever thought of that? I've thought of it. Wouldn't it be fun just to turn, come up to a stop sign and not look and turn? No, it would not be fun, right? Because warning bells go off in my head. I'll get hair hurt, you know? I might kill myself doing that. I don't want to do that. Well, do you have any Bible verses? I have, I have some Bible verses to show this. Here's an example of a warning. This isn't about salvation, but here's how it works in principle. Here's Acts 27. Here's the shipwreck scene, Acts 27. This is, this, is a, this is the storm. This is, this is a great story. This is a, Paul's a prisoner on the ship. I love this story because Paul's, Paul's the prisoner on the ship, but he's telling everybody what to do. What a, what a leader he was, even as the prisoner. Anyway, they're in the middle of a storm. I get into the middle of the story. Verse 21, they, they, they quit eating food. Paul stood up among them, and he said, because he'd already told them not to go, he says, men, you should have listened to me. Oh, that was a delicious moment for Paul, wasn't it? <laughs> I begin every business meeting at our church with these words. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so anyway, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for here comes the promise. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So that's the promise, right? It's like salvation. Not a single person will die. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. By the way, isn't that a great way to witness? What does he say? I belong to this God. I worship this God. 
But that's not his main point here. But the, what did the angels say? Why does Paul have, know this promise is true? Because an angel appeared to him. And the angel said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. That means you're going to make it to Rome. And, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Nobody in the ship is going to die. And by the way, at the end of the chapter, Luke gives us the number. All 276 lived. So we know this promise came true. So take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. And it was exactly. Every single person. So there's the promise. It's the same promise given to us, right? Everybody who truly belongs to God will never fall away. We will make it to the end. Not, not a single person will be lost. What would you do if you got that promise and you were Paul on the ship? Well, I know what I would have done. I would have gone down in the hold of the ship and I would have uh, turned on Netflix, ordered some popcorn, and said, let's wait for this thing to happen. You know, I've got a promise. I'm just going to relax. But that's not what Paul did. Let's keep reading. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. Obviously they're getting near the land. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, so the sailors are thinking, this ship is doomed. We're out of here. They'd lowered the ship's boat, so the small boat, right, the little dinghy, they'd lowered that ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, so they're pretending they're doing work, but really the sailors had said, let's get out of here. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in this ship, you cannot be saved. He's not talking about salvation. He says, if you let these men leave, you will die. Isn't that amazing? He got a promise, but then he gave a warning, right? The, the warning and the promise, they're not enemies, but they're friends. The, the warning is the means, because what did they do? Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship and let it go, so the sailors couldn't get away. So the, Paul believed that the warning and the promise work together. Here's another example. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That's a promise, right? He will guard you against the evil one. But we pray in the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil. Actually, I think that should be translated deliver us from the evil one. Why pray if we have a promise? Because the prayer is the means by which the promise is achieved. Means and ends work together in the Bible. Here's another example. Mark 13, 20. It, it's talking, you know, this passage, there's debates about details, but I'm not worried about, like, when all this happens and all that. I'm not worried about that tonight, I mean. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, these are the days of tribulation, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, in those days, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. If you believe that someone is the Messiah, 
other than Jesus, you're not a Christian, right? Because he says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. So, it'll be tempting to believe in a false Christ, right? And a false prophet. So, if anyone says, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The signs and wonders will be so great that they could possibly lead the elect astray. But guess what? He says, if possible. It's not possible. Right? It's not possible. If possible, they'd lead the elect astray. But it's not possible. The elect can't be led astray. Well, good. I don't have to worry about that warning then. Because he says, don't believe in a false Christ. Well, I won't. I won't. I've got a promise. But what does Jesus say next? But be on guard. He warns them. Isn't that re- remarkable? He's just giving them a promise. You're not going to believe it. But be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. Verse 33. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. Be vigilant. For you don't, do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the room rooster crows are in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say, I say to you all, stay awake. Be ready. Be on guard. But you won't fall away. The, 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 the promise and the warning, they work together. Heeding the warning is the means by which the promise is secured. So, The, the warnings are means. Are the warnings, I'm really saying the same thing again, because I have to keep saying it because it seems strange to people. Are the warnings superfluous? What does superfluous mean? Are they besides the point? Do we not need them? Yes, if you're an Arminian, God bless you, right? And keep you, <laughs> right? For no Arminian's going to believe what I'm saying, and I understand that, right? because they believe you can lose your salvation. And as I said, I think they're within the circle of orthodoxy. Fine, fine. But, but if you believe what I believe, if you believe that those who belong to God will not be lost, and if you believe, and I realize not everyone agrees with this either, but Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So God elects those who are his before the world began. Romans chapter 9 says he chose Jacob instead of Esau before they were both born or they had done anything good or bad. So he chose Jacob instead of Esau before they were born or had done anything good or bad. He didn't choose Jacob. He didn't look ahead and say, I'm going to choose Jacob because... He's a mighty fine guy, right? What a wonderful brother. Can you imagine a better brother than him? <clears throat> no, he didn't, he didn't choose Jacob by looking ahead and seeing his virtue. It, it, actually, faith, faith is a gift God gives to his people, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God that no one should boast, right? 
um, not of works that no one should boast. Now, so I'm arguing God elects his own before the world began, not by looking ahead and seeing what they'll do, but he elects them out of his own good pleasure. So how do we preach the gospel if we believe that? Well, this is what I always say. All those who are elect, please come forward. No. That's not what the Bible does, right? What do they do when we read the book of Acts? What do they say? Repent. Repent and believe. I'm arguing that the warnings were just like the initial call to salvation. God, just to, God chooses who will be saved. But we are called upon to preach the gospel and we call upon people to repent and believe. Those, those two, I'm not saying we can figure out a logical answer. I don't think it's illogical. But I'm not saying, I'm not trying to philosophically work this out. I'm just trying to be faithful to everything the Bible says. And the Bible says, God chooses us, and it says, we must repent and we must believe. We are responsible. We're not puppets, right? Our choices are real. And it, I think it, somebody used the word tension. There, there it is. There's tension there, right? I'm not trying, I don't, I don't think that tension is resolved for us. You know, it's not, it's not so surprising when we talk about the things of God that there are things beyond our understanding, right? That's not surprising to me. But I'm arguing, what am I arguing here? The warning passages work just like that initial call to faith. God has promised to keep us, those who are his, and yet we're warned to persevere, just as God has chosen to save us, but we're exhorted to repent and believe. Faith is a condition of believing and an instrument, but it's not the basis. So, now, what about those who fall away? There's some people who fall away, right? Yes? Well, remember, the warnings are perspective, right? They're not, they're not retrospective. The warnings are perspective. The war but the, the, the warnings are, 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 sh are, are shouted to runners as we're running the race. I mean, that's what I did Sunday morning, right? Let us run the race. They're not... They're, they're, they're not armchair reflections after the race, but there are retrospective verses in the Bible. Here's one. What about people who've left? There, in, in, in John's church, there were people who left the church. This is what he says. They went out from us. They left. But they were not of us. But they were not of us. For if they would have been of us, if they'd been really saved they would have continued with us. They would have persevered. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So those who depart from the race, they were never of us. Isn't that what he says? They were not of us. How do we know? They didn't persevere. All those who truly belong to God persevere. There are some people who leave, yes, but they were never part of the community, not really. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Yeah, Judas, Judas did that, right? When Jesus said, did I already say this? But when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, isn't it interesting? Every head in the room didn't swivel towards Judas, right? Yeah, it's him. No, they had no idea who it was, right? Judas preached. He did miracles. He cast out demons. But he wasn't saved, right? He did all those things. And then I will declare to them, verse 23, I never knew you. You were never mine. I never knew you. He doesn't say you lost it. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, yeah, some leave. They were never truly believers. Because he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.18, there are some who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. <coughs> they are upsetting the faith of some. That, that's the same word for that Jesus uses, uh, I mean, that the gospel writers use for Jesus turning over the tables. They're turning over the faith of some. The, the faith of some is vanishing. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So I think that's very significant. The Lord knew they weren't his. The Lord knows those who are his. So, yes, some, the retrospective view, there are some in the community, right? Maybe some here tonight, I hope not, who aren't genuine. But all those who are genuine, stick with it. So the warnings are directed to believers. They're not, are the warnings, do the warnings quench assurance? Are they a cause for introspection? No, they're a call to action and a call to faith. The warnings aren't intended to make you say, maybe I'm not a Christian. They're, they're a call to keep believing. When my kids were little, I used to say to them, if you, I know not everybody agrees with this today, I'm just going to say what I said, okay? <laughs> if you run into the street, I am going to spank you really, really hard. That's what I tell them. If you run into the street, I am really going to discipline you. It worked, by the way. You know? They didn't run in the street. But I wasn't saying, that I, I didn't want my kids to say, Am I alive? That's, what, that's the wrong view of the warning passages, right? I wasn't asking them to say, am I alive? I was, I was warning them not to do something. That's how the warnings work. I didn't want them to introspect. I wonder if, my, if I'm really alive. No, that's not what the warning's for. Of course, the authors knew some did not belong to God, but they don't write, I'm writing to authentic Christians. The warnings are to stimulate believers to keep trusting God. Those who don't heed the warnings, they're not part of Christ's flock. After all, the authors don't infallibly know who's genuine, but they know the warnings will produce fruit in the elect. Galatians 5.10, he's just given them a strong warning. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. 
And the one who is troubling you, the false teacher, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. What does he say? I have confidence you're going to keep this morning. Hebrews 6, right after the strong warning, what does he say? Though we speak in this way, he's just given the warning, right? Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's confident that the warning will produce the right effect. So the warnings are part of the gospel. Okay, I'm almost done. What time is it? Yeah. So I'm going to read two things. I'm going to read something from Charles Spurgeon, because Charles Spurgeon held my view. Well, I guess I should say I held his view. <laughs> he, was, he was around before me, right? So you may not know that. He's fam- Maybe you don't know that name. He's a famous Baptist preacher. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read two things. First, First, Spurgeon is going to say Hebrews 6 is addressed to Christians, and then, then he's going to explain how the warnings work. Now, I'm not giving his full sermon, right, his full defense, but I just want you to hear it. And then I'm going to read Herman Bovink, who's a theologian. Now, now I've got to say, Charles Spurgeon is very accessible. Herman Bovink is very theological. So if you're not helped by Bovink, I'll try to explain it, but it's so good. I have to read it. So... So here, here, first, first Spurgeon. First, then, we answer the question, who are the people here spoken of in Hebrews 6, right? If you read Dr. Gill, John Gill, right, Dr. Owen, John Owen, and almost all the eminent Calvinistic writers, they, all of them assert that these persons are not Christians. They all say it. They're almost Christians, right? They say that <clears throat> enough is said here to represent a man who is a Christian externally, but not enough to give the portrait of a true believer. So that's the almost Christian view. Now it strikes me that they would not have said this if they had not had some doctrine to uphold. For a child reading this passage would say that the persons intended by it must be Christians. If the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians, I do not see that he could have used more explicit terms than there are here. How can a man be said to be enlightened in the taste of the heavenly gift and to be made partaker of the Holy Ghost without being a child of God? With all deference to these learned doctors, and I admire and I love them all, I humbly conceive that they allowed their judgments to be a little warped when they said that. And I think I shall be able to show that none but true believers are here described. And then, then he gives the kind of defense I've given. I love, I love that, how he says, you know, I love them, but they're wrong. So, you know, very, very nice. Now, now, second part. Really, I've said all this. I just want you to hear it from Spurgeon. How do the warnings work? But, says one. You cannot fall away. What is the use of putting this if in like a bugbear to frighten children or like a ghost that can have no existence? My learned friend. Here's the first thing he says. I think it's so great. Who art thou that repliest against God? If God has put the warning in, he has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. God knows best, right? Let me show you why. First, O Christian, it is put in to keep thee from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice, the Grand Canyon. I put the Grand Canyon in. 
What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why, to tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No, he tells us the consequences, and he is sure we will not do it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, I love this part. What do we do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold thou me up and I shall be saved. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf, because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. I don't know about you, but I love that. So, so good. Okay, here comes Herman Bobbing. This is a completely different thing. Herman Bombink was a Presbyterian theologian, and he writes like a theologian. But it's so good. I hope it's helpful. If it isn't, I apologize. Now the question with respect to this doctrine of perseverance is not whether those who have obtained a true saving faith could not, if left to themselves, lose it again by their own fault and sins. In other words, he says... On our own, we'd fall away. That's what he's saying. He goes, the question isn't whether we'd fall away. Of course, without God, we would. That's the first thing he says. Nor is the question whether sometimes all the activity, boldness, and comfort of faith actually ceases, and faith itself goes into hiding under the cares of life and the delights of the world. So he says, first of all, left to ourselves, we would fall away. Secondly, sometimes our spiritual life goes way down, right? That's not the question. No, the question is, here's the question, is whether God upholds and continues and completes the work of grace he has begun, or whether sometimes he permits it to be totally ruined by the power of sin. That's the Arminian view, right? But God completes what he began, began, right? Perseverance is a gift of God. He watches over it and sees to it that the work of grace is continued and completed. He does not, however, do this apart from believers, but through them. In regeneration and faith, he grants a grace that as such bears uh, a, a character that cannot be revoked. He grants a life that is by nature eternal. He bestows the benefits of calling, justification, and glorification that are mutually and unbreakably interconnected. Doesn't Paul say that in Romans 8? Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he'll glorify. They're mutually and unbreakably connected. William Perkins, the great Puritan, if you know that name, talked about that golden chain, and the links of that chain can't be broken. That's what he's saying there. All of the above admonitions and threats, so now we're talking about the warnings, right? All of the above admonitions and threats that Scripture addresses to believers, therefore do not prove a thing 
against the doctrine of perseverance. They're rather the way in which God himself confirms his promise and his gift through believers. They are the means by which perseverance in life is realized. After all, perseverance is also not coercive, but as a gift of God impacts humans in a spiritual manner. In other words, God works in our hearts to keep us, right? It is precisely God's will by admonition and warning morally to lead believers to heavenly blessedness and by the grace of the Holy Spirit to prompt them willingly to persevere in faith and love. It is therefore completely mistaken to reason from the admonitions and the warnings of Holy Scripture to the possibility of a total loss of grace. This conclusion is illegitimate, as when in the case of Christ, people infer from his temptation that he was able to sin, right? Jesus was really tempted, but as the God-man, he could not sin. His temptation is real. The warnings are real, but we won't fall away. The certainty of the outcome does not render the means superfluous, but is inseparably, inseparably connected with them in the decree of God. Paul knew with certainty that in the case of the shipwreck, no one would lose one's life. Yet he declares, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. By the way, we wrote on this, and we used that example, and then later we found this quote from Bobby. So it went, we didn't know about this quote at the beginning, and he used the very same passage we used. So I'm done. <laughs> so I hope it was helpful. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we just pray we'd all be Bereans, and we'd search the scriptures and see what is so. And we know, Lord, that you're working in our hearts and we're working, you're working in our lives. We thank you for your grace that calls us and keeps us. And Lord, we thank you that you are a kind Father and you give us warnings and admonitions to keep us on the right road. Lord, we, we recognize these warnings and admonitions are the instructions, kind of like a cattle, cattle prods to keep us in line, but we receive them from your loving hand, and we pray that we would heed them by faith and by your grace and through your spirit and for your glory. Amen.